You're listening to the Grace Church Podcast, a weekly podcast dedicated to bringing you biblical guidance to life's most important issues. We want to thank you for joining us for this week's message. We pray you find strength and encouragement as we learn from God's truth together. For more information, go to visitgracechurch.com. Welcome. You guys doing well today? Wonderful, wonderful. My name's Shannon. I have the privilege of being the resident church planter here at Grace Church, uh, which many of you know is a new position for me, having been the Grace Groups Director for the last year, year and a half. Uh, And so I'm really excited about this new endeavor. Uh, Next year, uh, Grace Church is going to be sending us out to plant an independent church plant in the city of Lee Summit. Uh, And I would love to talk all about it, but Today isn't that day, uh, so some other time. But today we are continuing our series in the book of Exodus, uh, a series we began, sev- we began several uh, weeks back, which is where we've been talking about how the story of Exodus is really our story, how we go from slavery to salvation. Uh, and so today we're going to be in Exodus chapter 17. Uh, real quick, I want to kind of set the stage before we jump in today, maybe uh, set some expectations. I'm going to be brutally honest today about the true nature of our faith, just Maybe like an e-true Hollywood story, behind the scenes kind of thing. Pull the curtain back a little bit and deal with some of the tension that we live with with that. Uh, Because uh, I believe that there's a lot at stake. We risk our kids walking away from God at at an older age. Or we risk our friends or our family thinking we're a phony. Or worst of all, thinking that, that God is a phony. Because we give them a partial picture of our faith. About the true nature of our faith. We give them the rainbows and butterfly version often. But maybe we might not give them the totality of it. And so today might be a little bit uncomfortable. But how many of you know that God's truth should make us uncomfortable? Raise your hand up. Awesome. All right. So now that I've ruined all your expectations for today, uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and uh, turn to the book of uh, Exodus chapter 17. We're going to start reading in verse number eight today. Uh, If you don't have your Bibles, I believe uh, the ushers, wherever you're at, if you would raise your hand up and the ushers will give you one to use today. Um, If you're at home today watching online, uh, just go to your front door and there's an usher waiting for you. Uh, we're that good. Uh, kind of creepy, but we're good. Uh, also, I want to say welcome to those of you that are joining us uh, in Olathe, uh, or maybe you're joining us here in Overland Park in the venue or here in the auditorium, uh, or maybe you're joining us online anywhere from the Midwest to the Middle East. Thank you for being a part of our worship services this weekend. Uh, this is Exodus 17, verses 8 through 13. When Amalek came and fought with Israel, then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Verse 11, whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. Whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and one on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Let's take a moment and pray. Lord, I thank you for the power of your word. And Lord, I pray that you would open up our hearts and mind, allow the Holy Spirit to reveal to us a new, fresh truth today from your word. Lord, we thank you that your word is active and living. Uh, And so, Lord, I pray that we would leave here different, that we would leave here changed. Lord, I pray that it would be impossible that we could leave here the same. And Lord, we ask this in your name. And everyone said, 
Amen, amen. Well, um, about 12 or 13 years ago, uh, my friends and I uh, at my church, we are on the south side of Chicago, we decided to do, we wanted to do something fun, something exciting, something adventurous with our vacation time that year. And so we decided that we wanted to climb a mountain. We were kind of tired of the flat existence of the state of Illinois, and so we thought, okay, that could be kind of fun. And so we did a little bit of research, and we found out that one of the tallest mountains in the state of Colorado is a mountain called Long's Peak. It's right outside of Estes Park. And so naturally, that was the one that we wanted to climb. Uh, And we also found out that Long's Peak is a two-day journey to get to the top. It's a two-day trek. Uh, And so for several months before we left, we conditioned and we trained. And I remember strapping like weights to my legs and climbing stairs 30, 45 an hour each day just to get in shape. And uh, then we went out and bought supplies like tents and backpacks and and, uh, sleeping bags, all food, the sort of things that we knew we would need when we'd have to stay up in the mountains for one night. And and so finally, when the time came, uh, we got out to Estes Park. We spent a couple days acclimating to the altitude, and then early one morning, we decided to make a go for it. We decided to head for the boulder field. Now, the boulder field is about two-thirds of the way up, and that's generally where people stop, make camp, until they go for, and then they go for the summit the very next morning. And so we got to the boulder field about 6 p.m., and about 10 p.m. after we made camp, we decided to turn in for the night. Uh, and so unfortunately, I had made a very bad error in judgment. You see, I decided to bring this thin little fleece sleeping bag, thinking like I could save some space, some weight in my backpack, all right? And literally my thought process is this, it's like, how bad could it be? It's only one night. Little did I know how bad it could be, all right? And so apparently it gets well below zero at that part of, up at that altitude in the mountains. Let me ask this, how many of you have ever just shivered so much that your muscles were sore and even cramping up? How many of you have been that cold before? Okay, only a couple of you. Interesting. All right, and so that's how bad it got. So we turned in about 10 p.m. About 4.30 a.m. rolls around, and I'm still wide awake. I am shivering. I cannot get warm for the life of me. And so I haven't slept a wink. I tried putting on clothes. I tried taking off clothes. I tried putting my backpack on top of me. I was thinking of all the things I could do. Nothing was working. I think I started crying about 4.30 a.m. Rip off the corner of my man card. Give it to you right now, okay? Okay. It gets worse, don't worry, all right? And so about 5.30 a.m., the guy that was in the tent with me, there are two people tents, he turns over, realizes I've been up all night shivering and cold, and this is what he says to me. He says, Shannon, I don't care how it looks, just get in my sleeping bag. Just get in my sleeping bag with me. Now, guys, how many of you would have gotten in the sleeping bag at that moment? Okay, a couple of you, the rest of y'all liars, okay? Because it was freezing. And so I, he, I didn't even have to think about it. I'm like, yes, I'm in, all right? And so I got his sleeping bag, and within 30 seconds, I was asleep. There goes the rest of my man card. I'll just give it to you now. I'll earn it back later, all right? And so I was cold. I was out cold, right? And so about 6.30 a.m., this is the bummer, about 6.30 a.m., which is about an hour later, everybody at the camp got up, and we were going to head for the summit. Now, the bummer was is that I had a decision to make. Do I go for the summit or do I stay back and play it safe, knowing that I've been up almost all night, knowing that my muscles are fatigued, all that sort of stuff too? And as much as I hate to say it, to this very day, I regret my decision. I chose to play it safe and I stayed behind. And so no kidding, I sat there in that boulder field for eight or nine hours while the rest of my group went to the summit. I was bored out of my mind. I didn't fall back asleep because it turned out I really wasn't that tired. And as I'm sitting there, I had this thought to myself. I realized that in one decision, I went from being a mountain climber, which was everything I trained and hoped to be for months, to being a mountain admirer, which is where I stayed back and I played it safe. 
Now, interestingly, this is the same sort of crossroads that I believe we all come to many key times in our lives with regards to our faith journey as well. Because basically what happens is this, is we take our, our faith, this amazing gift of faith, which incidentally, um, uh, if you're here today and you haven't stepped out in faith, you haven't responded to God's amazing gift of grace, we can't earn it, but we can accept it freely. He gives it to us freely. If you're here today and you haven't taken that step, first of all, thank you for being here today. And secondly, I hope that my honesty today intrigues you somewhat about what we're talking about and about who God really is. All right, and so we take this amazing gift of faith, and at key moments in our lives, we, we, whether it's, you know, having the boldness to talk to a coworker or a friend about Jesus, or maybe it's just responding to a call, to a burden, to a passion that God placed in our life, maybe when we we're young, and it's still there, and we haven't even responded to it, whatever the case is, and then we do the same thing I did up on that mountain. We, do, we make a conscious decision to do one of two things. We either, one, we choose to become a God follower which is where we actively and fearlessly pursue God, knowing that the journey always involves a risk. And yes, that risk can bring hardship, it can bring challenge, it can bring difficulty and strife in our life, but nonetheless, we choose to follow God because we know what we receive in return is far greater than anything this world has to offer. Or we choose to become a God admirer, which is where we decide to stay back, we admire God from a safe and comfortable distance Therefore, never really allowing our faith to disrupt the comfortable status quo of our lives today. Now, I'm not suggesting that we should leave here today and go do something risky or something dangerous for no reason at all. I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is that having faith in a living, holy God while we live in a fallen, sinful world is inherently risky. It is inherently risky, especially when we are called then to go back into that fallen sinful world and to make disciples in the name of Jesus. In fact, if you're taking notes today, you can write that down. That's my, my brutal honesty point number one. All right? it's, it's that having faith in a fallen world involves risk. It involves risk. All right, I mean, just think about it. We're serving a perfect God. We're imperfect people in an imperfect world. And at some point, there's going to be a clash of values. And that clash of values does not feel good. It doesn't feel comfortable for us at times. In fact, I like how, how Richard Stern put it. Richard Stern is the guy who wrote the book, The Hole in Our Gospel. If you want to read a book that will mess you up, read that book, The Hole in Our Gospel by Richard Stearns. This is what he said. He said, if you feel safe or comfortable being a Christian, you might want to check who you're really following. Wow. But you know, the truth is, whether we like it or not, that's what faith is, isn't it? I mean, that's the very definition of faith. It's found in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. If you don't know that, write that down. It's where faith is defined for us. It tells us that faith is the assurance of what we hope for, and it's the confidence, it's the conviction of what we do not see. Interesting, right? And so that means that for us to have faith, it requires us to step out. It requires us to surrender our control to someone far greater than ourselves, to get out of our comfort zone, and to follow God's lead. Listen to this. Even when we don't know the why, even when we don't know the answer to the question why or the outcome. You know, we tend to do that backwards in today's world, right? We're willing to commit to something when we know all the details, when we think we know what the outcome is going to be, we know everything about it, then we'll commit. But that's the opposite of what faith is. Faith says we step out in faith, putting our hope and trust in Him, not knowing the why sometimes and sometimes not even knowing the outcome. That's what faith is. And, and, and the truth is, quite honestly, that's the adventure of faith. That's what makes it so exciting, right? Because there's that risk factor to it. We know that since we live in a fallen world, right? Faith is never boring. If your faith is boring today, somewhere something is tragically going wrong, 
all right? Because God, when, when we surrender our heart to him, we, we get a new heart. I mean, in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul tells us that the, we're a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. And so we're not a better version of our old selves. We are a brand new creation in his eyes, right? And so he gives us a new purpose and he gives us a, a peace that passes understanding. And so while our faith is never, ever boring, at the same time, it's also not rainbows and butterflies either. And by the way, on a side note here, for those of you that um, have ever read Hebrews chapter 11, we call that the heroes of faith chapter. You guys say that with me, heroes of faith. Ready? One, two, three. Heroes of faith. Yeah, we like this chapter, right? It talks about people like Enoch, and, uh, who, who was taken to heaven without ever even dying. God took him to heaven. Or, or Abraham, who left his hometown, not knowing why, not knowing where, but he stepped out in faith and he trusted God. Or, or Noah built an ark for 75 years before it ever even flooded. That was a risk, right? And so we love this chapter because it talks about all the ones that stepped out in faith. They knew the risk, they knew the dangers, and yet they were victorious. But here's the crazy thing about Hebrews chapter. 11. You see, I love half of the chapter, right up until about verse 34 or 35. And honestly, if I could, I would take white out and I'd just kind of delete the rest of it. Because unfortunately, what happens is the writer then flips the script and the writer then starts talking about the heroes of faith that were sawn in two because of their faith, that were tortured because of their faith, that were stoned to death because of their faith. Now, that, let's be honest, that's not the side of our faith we like to talk about, is it? That's not the comfortable side. That's not even the side that we even like to acknowledge, right? And, and forgive me for saying this, but that is not the Christian radio version of faith that we hear about in the morning when we're on our commute. You know, the, the, everything's positive and great. And that's definitely not the, the version of faith that we're giving our kids at night when we pray with them before they go to bed. You know, oh, dear Lord, I pray that little Johnny has the same kind of faith as Stephen did in Acts chapter 7, where he, he was so full of faith that an angry mob of people stoned him to death. Amen, amen. That's not what we do. We don't like talking about that. And really, the reason is simple. You see, we don't like risk. We don't like risk. And in fact, the older we get, the more risk-averse we tend to become. You know, I would even suggest, and I think you would agree with me on this, that even in our culture, especially here in our country, we are becoming more and more obsessed with our safety and our comfort and our convenience than any other generation before us. All right, think about this. Uh, last Sunday, I turned uh, 44 years old. Uh, and so I was thinking about back when I was a kid and having these conversations with my children. And I think I officially became my parents when I said, well, when I was a kid, <laughs> you know, but some of you might relate to this, but think back to when you were a kid. You know, for instance, do you remember like being in grade school? Do you remember when that bell would ring for recess and that was like your favorite part of the day? It's like, woohoo, we get to go outside, right? And so we'd go outside and we'd play. And do you remember the playground was like made out of dirt and gravel? pavement maybe. You know, there was no grass there. That had been trampled decades before, right? And so we knew if we fell, we were probably going to scrape our legs. If we scraped our legs, we're probably going to get gangrene in the wound. And if we got gangrene, we have to go to the school nurse and they're going to have to amputate our leg, right? That's kind of how things were back then, right? The monkey bars on the playground were always rusty. The slide was two stories tall back then, right? And so I was always snagging my clothes on something jagged sticking out of the slide. I come home, my mom was always angry at me for what happened to your jeans? I went down the slide, Okay, and so fast forward to today, my wife is an elementary school teacher. You ever notice like on today's school playgrounds, there are no slides. They're not safe anymore. 
right? Do you ever notice that the, the, the ground is even coated with this like rubber coating? It's like shredded tires or something like that, right? So if my kid does just happen to fall, he'll probably bounce so high he'll end up in slow earth orbit or something. Like we are obsessed with safety and comfort today, right? Or, or how about when we used to ride bikes when we were a kid? I loved riding my bike as a kid. My mom, I don't know if, where they would find it, my parents, but they found these bikes that had solid rubber tires. Does anyone remember solid rubber tires on your bike? Okay, a few of you. And so they had no traction whatsoever. And especially when it got wet out, you tried to turn a corner and you went right over. So I flipped over my handlebars all the time. I was constantly falling. My brakes worked half the time. The chain was rusty. That's kind of how things were. Fast forward to today. I kid you not, I saw a kid riding his bike in front of my house the other day, and I watched him. He had a knee pads on, elbow pads, biking gloves, and a helmet, and I'm pretty sure his mom had just wrapped him in bubble wrap at this point, you know? If he fell, he wouldn't know that he fell over, right? But the part that got me was that on his bike, there was this crossbar that had a battery on it, and so he's going up the hill by my house, and he's not even pedaling. I'm like, when did, we, when did pedaling become so bad that we can't be uncomfortable pedaling? Our kids aren't pedaling bikes anymore. You know, and so I was just amazed by this. We're obsessed with our comfort. We're obsessed with our safety. All right, and don't even get me started about all the litigation these days and how everything has become a liability. Mark my words, we're going to be signing waivers to buy marshmallows pretty soon, aren't we? All right, and so don't get me wrong here. This is my point. It, all of those things, I'm glad that we're safer. Right? All those things for us physically, I'm glad that my kids are safer. I'm glad our cars are safer. All of these things are good. But when we bring that same mentality into our faith, I believe it's deadly for us spiritually. You see, we are suffocating the very nature of our faith. Our faith wasn't designed to be comfortable. It wasn't designed to be safe. And so really, that's the story of Moses that we've been studying for the last several weeks, right? Because if you recall, Moses spent 80 years of his life playing it safe, 40 years in the palace, living it up in the lap of luxury, right? And then he kills an Egyptian soldier one day, and he goes, runs off and hides as a simple shepherd, playing it safe because he was scared of the consequences. 80 years he played it safe. And then one day when he responds to God's call in his life, check this out, he spends the last 40 years of his life enduring hardship and conflict, and strife, and attacks like this passage today, all right, all these things. And yet, knowing that, he was still exactly where God wanted him. He was right in the middle of God's will. What do you do with that? That's challenging. And listen to me when you hear me, when I say this, is that sometimes we have this mentality that a comfortable, easy life is a sign of God's favor, his blessing, that we're in his will, but how quickly we forget that the Bible is full of examples of strife and difficulties as being an indicator, as being a sign of being in God's will, of having God's favor in your life. I know that doesn't sound comfortable. I know that doesn't sound fun. I know that doesn't sell bumper stickers or, or billboards. You know, you don't drive here on the way to church. Come find your difficulties and strife at Grace Church. That's not how it goes, right? But the good news is, is that when we're in those valleys, that's when God draws near to us, right? He says he's near to the brokenhearted. We grow when we're in the valleys. We don't grow when we're on the mountaintops. We grow in the valleys. And when we're done with those, those seasons in life, we always look back and say, I'm so thankful that I went through that because look at what it created in me. Look how God used that in my life, right? You know, I don't even know a single person in Scripture that had a comfortable, easy faith journey, right? Even, think about this, even Jesus himself, 
Jesus, I mean, he was a perfect, sinless, sinless man. He loved people the way that I wish I could love people to this day. He loved the unlovable in ways that mesmerizes me. And yet he still endured persecution, hardship, and even crucifixion on our behalf. And so I wonder, why should I expect any different in my life? Why should I expect it to be better? In fact, go go with me here, and I apologize right now if I offend anybody, but I wonder sometimes if, if maybe deep down, subconsciously, maybe we have this thought, maybe we believe that maybe we can live our faith a little bit better than Jesus. Just a little bit better. I mean, do we have to be as controversial You know, maybe if we didn't call religious people, you know, broods of vipers like he did. Maybe if we didn't show up in the church lobby and flip over tables like he did in the temple, you know. Maybe if we didn't call those closest to us, get behind me, Satan, you know, when when, uh, someone steps out of line like Peter did. Maybe if we didn't do those things. Maybe if we acted like other people and dressed like other people and talked like other people, maybe then we'd fit in enough that we don't have to endure the kind of persecution and the strife that Jesus had to. But then I wonder, is that really faith anymore? Is that the kind of faith that's bold and it has conviction and it stands for what is right? Or is that the kind of faith that's comfortable, plays it safe, takes the easy way out, lacks conviction? Listen, I believe that we live in a day and age, in our country especially, where as Christians, we need to have bold faith. We need to stand up for what's right. Now, that doesn't mean we become cantankerous or rude or argumentative on Facebook. That's not what it means at all. We're called to speak truth in love, but we're called to stand up and speak truth in love. But I'm afraid that, unfortunately, far too many of us, we're scared of the ridicule. We're scared of being outcast or singled out that we choose the safe, easy route quite often, and we choose to be a God admirer instead of a God follower. You know, the truth is Jesus set some pretty hardcore expectations for us and what we should expect in this world. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 10, 22. He says, you will be, you ready for this? Hated by all for my name's sake. I've, um, I've never seen that verse sewn on a throw pillow. You're hated. But that word hated, it means in the Greek to detest, to pursue with animosity. And so it's not dislike. It's not that um, someone doesn't want to be my Facebook friend. No, this is the world hates you today. The world detests you and pursues you with animosity. Here's an here's a easy way to illustrate what Jesus is talking about here. Let's go back to our childhood again. I love doing that. How many of you remember Saturday morning cartoons? Like you love Saturday morning cartoons. Okay, one of my favorite moments of the week. And so I'd get up and drag my pillow and blanket into the living room. And back then the TVs were on the ground, right? The floor consoles. And so I'd be eye to eye with the TV. And my favorite cartoon by far was one called Tom and Jerry. You guys remember Tom and Jerry? All right. And so you know what I loved about Tom and Jerry is that you could be brain dead and still know what's going on. Did you ever realize that there is no words in Tom and Jerry? Like there's no dialogue whatsoever, and yet somehow the plot is so simple, right? Tom the cat hated Jerry the mouse, and so Jerry was always outsmarting Tom. In fact, by the end of the episode, Jerry was always victorious, but at the end of the episode, they weren't friends, they were enemies. They had conflict all the time. That's kind of how things were, right? And so it's the same principle that Jesus is talking about with us in this world as well, is because the values of our faith and the values of this world, they are not compatible. They don't go together. Light and darkness do not mix. 
right? Truth and lies are not friends at the end of the day. They don't sit down and have coffee together or say one has to always give way to the other. Light always trumps darkness no matter what. Truth always trumps lies no matter what. That's how things are. But thankfully, just like Tom and Jerry, listen, even before our episode was written, we are victorious. Because of our faith, we are on the winning side. I expected at least one amen there. Amen. You guys like being on the winning side, right? I'm from Chicago. I didn't know what winning was till last year, so <laughs> cut me some slack here, okay? We're on the winning side. Jesus tells us this in John 16. He says that you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Paul tells us in Romans 8 that we are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus, right? And so that's amazing, but the unfortunate thing is, just like Tom and Jerry, that doesn't mean we're not going to have to go through difficulty and strife and conflict, right? Because bottom line, our faith inherently invites strife into our life. It's like we're a magnet for strife in this world because of our faith. In fact, if you're taking notes, write that down. That's our second point. My brutal honesty second point is that faith often invites strife into our lives. It often invites strife and difficulties into our lives. And so the question is, listen, when was the last time you felt shunned or hated or is it outcast solely because of your faith in Jesus Christ? When was the last time that happened? So I think about this in my life. I remember when I was a kid, not going to the same movies my friends wanted me to go to, and I was treated like an outcast. I remember when I was a deputy, I didn't do the things that the other guys did, and so I was treated like an outcast. I was shunned because of that in many ways. When was the last time we were hated and shunned for it? Because listen, if the world isn't hating us at some level because of our faith, then I believe that our faith might be a little bit too comfortable with the world. Let me say that again. If the world isn't hating us at some level because of our faith, then there's a chance our faith might be a little bit too comfortable with the world. Maybe we're trying to mix darkness and light. Maybe we're trying to mix truth and lies. They don't go together. So either way, we have a target on our back today because of our faith. But the cool thing is God is with us, and he's, we're exactly where he wants us. And so that's what's happening in our passage here today as we look at verse 8 because they had a target on their back. Strife was coming their direction. So here's what was happening is that the Israelites, they're camping out. They're probably sitting around campfire. They're eating some manna. They're talking about how, you know, Moses got water to come out of a rock and that was really cool. They're probably just, just chillaxing at this point when all of a sudden out of nowhere, this group of people called the Amalekites just attack the Israelites. Just out of the clear blue, no warning whatsoever, they attack. Now, here's the thing. I've read this story since I was a little kid, but this week when I was studying it, some things jumped out at me, and this is it. I I don't think the Amalekites were that bright. I don't think they were the sharpest tools in the shed, all right? Go with me. The Amalekites, think about it, they're attacking the very people whose God just wiped out the entire Egyptian army, right? The Red Sea came crashing down over the Egyptian army. Egypt was the only superpower back then. Somebody in the Amalekites said, you know, we should attack them too, (laughs) Okay, not very bright. <laughs> All right, and then the second thing I noticed here is that they attacked, the way they attacked the Israelites, it was this cheap, cowardly tactics that they were using, right? But our text doesn't indicate that. If you flip over to Deuteronomy 25, and I can just read this for you, but this is what it says in verses 17 and 18 of Deuteronomy 25. It says, remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. When you were weary and worn out, pause button, that's when the enemy attacks, right? When we're weary, worn out, Right? When you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and attacked all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. 
And so in other words, they were picking off the stragglers, the older folk, the women and children who were at the back of the party. That is cheap. That is cowardly to attack the Israelites that way, right? And the unfortunate thing is this is exactly what the enemy still does to us to this very day, the same cheap, cowardly tactics. Uh, I'll never forget this, but uh, many years back when I was in my first full-time uh, position in the ministry, uh, I had recently responded to God's call. I think I, we talked about this before, where um, I, I, to be a God follower, to step out in faith and, and take a risk instead of playing it safe all my life and being a God admirer. And so uh, I had left law enforcement. I was now into full-time ministry, and I was a youth pastor, a full-time youth pastor is my first position, uh, which also meant I was making a lot less money, so I was living by faith every day. Uh, and so anyway, late one night, about 2 a.m. in the morning, uh, my wife and I, we are woken to sirens and flashing lights in front of our house. And so we get up, and we go downstairs, and we're rubbing our eyes. We're in our pajamas just trying to figure out what's going on. And we see our cars parked there in the street, and they look fine because this part of Chicago, everybody parks in the street. Uh, and so I'm talking to the police officer, trying to get, get what's happening here. And he says, um, well, there was a drunk driver that came down uh, the street and just started hitting a bunch of the cars. I'm like, well, at least ours look like they're okay. And he goes, uh-oh, you might want to walk into the middle of the road. I'm like, oh. So I walk out, and as I'm passing my car, I, I was thinking, I, I just washed mine and my wife's car that night before, so they're nice and clean, look great on the curbside. I got out on the road, and sure enough, from one end to the other, he did not miss an inch for both cars. Ripped the tires off the rims. He just totaled our cars in a matter of seconds. Probably our only possessions worth anything in the world at that time. And I'm standing there in the middle of the road, I'm in my pajamas, and I remember literally saying out loud, are you kidding me, God? Are you serious? Like, I followed the call that you put in my life. I stepped out in faith, and this happens now? Now, praise the Lord, I was not um, dumb enough back then to think that God caused this or anything, but I was upset, right? And so the good news is God gives us grace in those moments when we vent, doesn't he? He's a big enough God to give us grace. He doesn't zap us with lightning, and now we're just furballs or something, right? But the bad news was is that I had totally in that moment taken my eyes, I was so focused on, on the problem that I had taken my eyes off the problem solver. I was so focused on what was happening with the problem that I entirely took my eyes off the problem solver. And because of that, I wasn't able to see the big picture. I wasn't able to see the true victory of what God was wanting to accomplish through this situation. And so bottom line, I was angry. I was upset. Most of all, I was discouraged which incidentally is the three things the enemy loves to do, right? His tactics, discourage, divide, and deceive. And really, that's the best that he can do. So it makes me wonder here as we look at our passage if this is what Moses was feeling. He just pursued God's call. They're out in the desert. He stepped out in faith. He's leading the Israelites. And all of a sudden, the Amalekites, they, they attack out of, they blindside him. I'm thinking, you know, is he wondering, is he standing there going, seriously, God? Like, is this why you brought us out to the desert? But the good news is, according to the text here, apparently he knew where the true victory was. Apparently he got the big picture. All right, and so real quick, follow me here. I'll, just, I'll wrap here in a minute. But you'll notice that there's two things in verse 9 that Moses tells, Moses tells us, them to do. He says, number one, he tells Joshua to pick some men and go fight the Amalekites. He says, you fight. The second thing that he tells, he's, he's going to go up on the hill and he's going to meet with God. Now, interestingly, this is the part of the story where we tend to interpret it wrong. 
Like, I read this story, I've heard it since I was a little kid. It wasn't until a couple years ago until I even understood really what God was trying to show us here because we tend to interpret this wrong. Because basically what we do is we tend to think that the victory is what happened down on the battlefield when the Israelites beat the Amalekites. All right, that's an awesome win. There's nothing wrong with that. That's good. But when the truth is, the true victory was actually happening up on top of that hill where Moses was meeting with God. All right, and so let me illustrate what I'm trying to say here. Let's reverse this around for a second. Let's just picture for a moment that the Israelites went out to fight the Amalekites, and that day the Amalekites just pounded the Israelites. They just, they, they slaughtered them. They won. Let me ask this. Is, does that mean that God was no longer in control? Like, did God wake up that morning and go, oh, I totally didn't see that coming. Of course not, right? He's still in control, right? In fact, if you fast forward just some, you kind of flip some pages further up, you'll see that there's times when Israel did lose battles on the battlefield to their enemies. And so clearly that can't be the victory. And so knowing that, the true victory isn't found on the physical battlefield, right? The, the true victory was found up on that hill, which is where Moses, he had his arms reached up to God in full surrender, saying, I trust you. My hope is in you. My faith is in you that no matter what happens, whatever the outcome is, the battle is yours, God. That was the true victory that day. And listen, if you're taking notes, that's my third and final point, is that the true victory is faith, all right? Having faith is the true victory today, right? In fact, that's what the whole, the whole Hebrews um, 11, Heroes of Faith chapter is all about. It's about how some went out and they stepped out in faith and they were victorious because of that, but then some went out and they stepped out in faith and they were sawn in two. They were tortured because of it. Do we call them losers of faith? Of course not. They're heroes of faith. Why? Because they stepped out in faith knowing that God was the outcome. Whatever the outcome was, it was up to God and not themselves. All right, so you know what that means? Is that when David went and fought Goliath, the true victory wasn't in him beating Goliath. The true victory was that he stepped out on the battlefield in faith, trusting God that no matter the outcome, God was in control. Do you know when we teach that story to our kids wrong all the time? We teach them that the victory was when he slaughtered the giant, right? He took down Goliath. And, and then our kids go to school, and then they stand up to a giant. They stand up to a bully, and that bully pops him in the head. And then they come home, and they look at us and say, God's fake. He didn't stand up for me. What's wrong here? It's because we taught him the wrong victory. The true victory was that David stepped out in faith. No matter the outcome, he trusted God. When Daniel was in the lion's den, the true victory wasn't that he came out alive. Praise the Lord that he did. The true victory was that he stepped out in faith. When we plan a church next year in Lee Summit, listen, we could have 20 people, we could have 2,000 people. I don't know, but that's not the victory. The true victory is are we going to step out in faith and trust God for the outcome no matter what it might be? And so, yes, our faith involves risk today. Yes, our faith invites strife into our lives, but having faith is the victory because it's what grants us access to our Heavenly Father, to an eternity with God. That's the big picture. That's what matters today. You know, this is what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. I love that. Whatever we're going through today, whatever difficulties or strife we're dealing with, it, you can't even compare it to the eternal glory of what awaits us. That's the victory today. Let me close with this quote. This is what a pastor wrote about 75 years ago, and I love this quote. This is what he said. Where are the young men and women of this generation who will hold their lives cheap and be faithful even unto death, who will lose their lives for Christ, flinging them away for love of him? 
Where are those who will live dangerously and be reckless in His service? Where are the men of prayer? Where are the men and women who count God's Word of more importance to them than their daily food? Where are the men and women who, like Moses of old, commune with God face to face as a man who speaks with his friend? Where are God's people in this day of God's power? Our faith was never meant to be safe and comfortable. It's meant to take us to mountaintops. It's meant to lead us through valleys. That is the adventure that God has for us. Let's not suffocate our faith today to the point where we look back at the end of our life and we have regrets that we played it safe. That we sat in the boulder field and watched everybody else do what God had led them to do and we lived the most boring, safe existence. and We missed out on what God had for us. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, your word is amazing that you teach us what faith truly is today. Lord, I pray if there's anybody here that's going through strife or difficulty, Lord, that first of all, they would know that they are not alone, that this is part of the faith journey, but you always walk with us, Lord, that you grow us during those times, that you draw near to us. But Lord, most of all, that the true victory is found in an eternity with you. Lord, I pray if there's somebody here today that hasn't taken that step of faith, Maybe they've been confused or don't understand even what it means, but Lord, to surrender control to you means just that. We don't have the answers. We don't know what's next. We don't even know the outcome, but Lord, we trust you, and that's it. So what I pray today would be that day. Lord, thank you so much for loving us that you would send your son to die for us and to endure the persecution. Lord, we love you today in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you have questions or would like to contact us for prayer, please email us at info at visitgracechurch.com. For more information about our ministries, location, and service times, go to visitgracechurch.com.